With the Larry Householder case going to the jury today, I want to take a second to thank everybody who has written to us with appreciation for the coverage we've given to this case. We've heard from people both in text and in email in response to this podcast, in response to Jake Zuckerman's daily coverage, thanking us. Some said really appreciated it. They believe it's the best coverage there is. We hope so. Uh, We have dedicated quite a few resources to doing this, and it makes us feel really good when we hear compliments like that from the audience. So thanks very much. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Tassi. We we do have kind of a householder story today, not a big one, but we will have probably a big one tomorrow. Let's begin. Laura, how big was the rise in 2022 of juveniles being charged with murder and being victims of homicide? This is a hugely disturbing trend that Corey Schaefer lays out. Prosecutors charged 35 youths with murder or aggravated murder in 2022. That's a 52% jump from just 2021. But go back a couple of years, there were only nine in 2018. There are also 19 children who died who were murdered in 2022. That's up from 13 in 2021. And these are huge spikes. The defendants charged in these cases are kids as young as 12 or 14. And they're charged with killings of of about 27 people, eight of whom were also children. And what Corey found is these numbers closely mirror the rise in the early 1990s. In in 1995, there were 34 kids charged with murder. And it suggests that we're in the middle of an epidemic of youth gun violence that we haven't seen since the 1990s when there were so many shootings and slayings that there was a gang summit in Cleveland. A lot of the same factors are there, poverty, but the main factor experts point to is how easily kids can get guns. The more violence there is, the more teenagers feel like they need a gun to protect themselves, and so they go and they get one. Mental health, obviously, always an issue, and the rise of social media, where bullying, which used to be in person, has gone 24-7. I was a crime reporter in Cleveland in the mid-1990s, and there is a very big difference between then and now. Back then, it was battling for the street corners. It was just like the the series on HBO about the Baltimore drug battles. They were fighting daily for the customer base for crack sales. And so that was very specifically a commerce war where people were shooting each other. This is not. You don't have the same kind of thing going on. It is the prevalence of guns and a teenager with a gun If they get mad, they use the gun. And that's why we see all of this random, much more random violence. I don't know what kind of summit you could have today to stop it because it's not organized like it was then. Exactly. And yeah, teenagers' prefrontal cortexes are not developed, right? We're talking about a 12-year-old. That's not even a teenager yet. That is a child who doesn't understand the implications of what they're doing all the time. And there's and you no, have some experience with that, don't you? I, I do, but he does not have a gun, right? <laughs> no. Like, exactly. No. His his rage spats are over like toaster waffles. So, you know, I, I just see what the brain is like. And this is really scary. So there's not a lot of research on this because politicians in the gun lobby have for years restrict, restricted groups that receive federal funding from conducting meaningful research into gun violence. So you don't know exactly how these kids are getting the access to the firearms. But all you can look at is the more guns there are, the easier it's going to be to get them. And the concealed carry 
law in Ohio where you don't even need a permit anymore or you don't need training, that just makes it easier. And, and Corey details some really scary cases. A 12-year-old boy went with an, his older brother and two other teenagers to rob a man in a marijuana deal. 19 years old, he had a fiance. He was shot once in the back during this this robbery and died. And the 12-year-old, we don't know who shot him, but the 12-year-old was involved in this. And then there was a nine-year-old who was waiting in her car, in her parents' car, while her mom ran into the boxing gym to get her older brother. And there was just random firing of bullets, hit her in the head and killed her instantly. There is a big disconnect between the city's and the Ohio legislature. The, the Republicans like to say, oh, the cities are dens of crime and look, they're out of control. And most of the legislation that's passed these days really does kind of pit rural versus urban Ohio. I wish there was some way to get the legislators that pass these laws to hear from the the people affected by these tragedies, because this is real, that you're losing children, you're losing the, the brightness of the future. But but in Columbus, they don't see people. They see stereotypes. And how do you break that down so they understand this is the product of what you've done? Mike DeWine talks about children all the time, but he has signed every single gun bill that came right. to him. And exactly that. And you can't just start dealing with these kids. One expert said waiting until they're 14, 15, 16, 17 and involved in a violent crime is too late. You need to to get to them early and deal with emotion, stress, and trauma. Obviously, we've gone through three years of COVID. That's taken a toll. All these mental health issues. This is the say yes kind of stuff that we're talking about, you know, in the Cleveland's Promise series that Layla oversees, that this is helping kids deal with their emotions so they never get to the point where they feel like they need to carry a gun or they don't get those emotions out of control. And as for the rural-urban divide, I think it was last week or the week before there was a woman filling her gas tank in a minivan in Morrow County off of 71 and was the victim of random violence of a guy who'd stolen a car, I think in Columbus. I don't know if it was a juvenile or not, but this was a woman who died in a rural area. You know, just it, gun violence is not just confined to cities. People have cars. They can go places. Or yeah, they but, steal the bulk cars. Of it, but the bulk of it. Let's right. Face it, I know. It's cities. just it, it affects anyone. We never know. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We missed a few flu seasons because of all the precautions we took to avoid COVID. Lisa, how's it gone this year? Well, it's kind of coming back to pre-pandemic levels. The current flu season started earlier this year and it peaked early. And remember, we were dealing with RSV among children and COVID was also rising at the time. And we had high hospitalization rates this flu season, especially for children, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. Prakash Ganesh with the County Board of Health says flu season has really taxed us this year. He said from November through January, they had the highest number of cases in quite a while, and all the local hospitals were busy and remain busy with flu. And he said that its arrival after the RSV outbreak was very challenging. And Dr. Amy Edwards with Rainbow Babies and Children, she's an infectious disease expert. She says flu season typically goes on until May, and there's usually a second wave in February and March, but we haven't seen it. So she says that might be the silver lining to this cloud, that we may not see another wave in this uh, early springtime. But we did 
did have more flu-related deaths than in 2021 and 22. In Cuyahoga, so far, we've had 16 flu deaths, two of them children so far. Lorraine has had six deaths, uh, Lake County four, Summit has 15, and Medina has five deaths so far. And right now, uh, in the state, there are over 8,800 people that have been hospitalized for flu. And experts are saying part of this is a lack of immunity because we were, you know, sheltering in place and social distancing and wearing masks and hand washing. So that kind of brought our immunity down a little bit, even though the flu shot was very good this year for the strain that's that's circulating. And also they're saying that vaccination hesitancy has spilled over from COVID into other diseases. What's, I've seen uh, some bitter kind of communication of late about mask wearing. Uh, one of the people that corresponded to me, I think about the comics, but he brought up, you want to see wokeness come out to Kent State University where there's people walking down the street wearing masks. Why would you do that? And I've seen this elsewhere. And the people that are wearing the masks are trying not to either get COVID or the flu. And it's odd that there is so much kind of malice being aimed at them for protecting themselves. And they're just doing it right. I mean, they're not being mandated to do it. They're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. And it's a shame that they're being vilified for that. Yeah, I I don't understand the ridicule. It's personal choice, live and let live. And uh, my bet is they probably haven't had the flu, so good for them. It's today in Ohio. Let's stick to viruses. It's a milestone that is hard to fathom, but this week marks three full years since everything shut down because of COVID and society will never be the same. Layla, we took at the numbers three years later. What do they show? Rich Exner, one of our data gurus, our OG data guru, I should say, <laughs> tells us that uh, so many Ohioans have died from COVID that if they were all in one place, they would make up one of Ohio's 15 largest cities. I mean, that's a, a very grim and startling way to look at the impact that this disease has had on us. But man, it puts the terrible reality of these past few years in a perspective. By official accounting from the Ohio Department of Health, 41,242 Ohioans died of COVID during the first three years of the pandemic. 13,621 were in the first year, 18,277 in year two, and 9,344 last year. Our overall death toll in Ohio jumped by more than 57,000 in that three-year period over the three years preceding it. A lot of those deaths are assumed to be indirectly related to COVID, either because folks delayed medical treatment during lockdown or because their lifestyles changed for the for the worse or because of the stress of living through the pandemic and the, the toll that that takes on your health. We saw more than 100,000 hospitalizations. And when we talk about overall infection rates, the Ohio Department of Health reports 3,392,320 cases so far among the 11.8 million Ohioans with the biggest surge in year two of the pandemic. And those are just the cases that we're aware of. By some research, Rich tells us at least half of us have been infected, probably more. And every day that number grows. Ohio reports 10,000 new cases each week and 10 to 20 Ohioans still die daily from COVID. Yet cases are generally much less severe than they once were, thanks in large part to the vaccine and, and new treatments. But unfortunately, the data tells us that to date, one in four Ohio adults has not received even one shot 
But even among the 6.8 million adults who have been vaccinated, only 3.8 million returned for the booster at some point, and only 1.7 million have gotten the latest booster, which has been available since September. So unfortunately for the unvaccinated folks, they make up 93% of the COVID deaths and hospitalizations. Yeah, I'm ready for another booster. It's been six months. It's time right. to bring it back. Rich was frustrated because I had asked him at the start of this, can we figure out really accurately how many people have had this and have not? Because we suspect we're probably getting down to 20% or less that have not had it, which is which is, if I'm right, the podcast is way out of whack because three quarters of us haven't had it. Mm-hmm. But you can't get it. it. It there there is nothing reliable to to do it based on testing and smart estimating. A lot of people that got it tested positive with a home test never reported it. So they're not counted. But there's nobody that's really come up with a system to estimate that. So we have no clue. We don't know well, what percentage have not I had I think it. also a big part in a big problem in trying to get at that true number is the number of people who were asymptomatic mm-hmm. and transmitting the virus. I mean, when my whole family around Christmas tested positive, only my husband and I really had symptoms. One of my kids, it didn't affect her at all. I mean, she was just her normal self. And I thought for sure it had skipped over her. Nope, we tested her, positive. And so I'm certain that there are plenty of people who have that, you know, reaction to the virus and they're just out there. So I don't think there's a way to know. I think that it's possible that we all have had it. We've all been carrying it at some point. But it's a different thing. But when West Nile virus hit back, what, 10, 15 years ago, the, the county went out and just did random blood testing to get an estimate of how many of us had it. And it turned out that a huge percentage of us had had it with no symptoms. Coronavirus is different because signs that you've had it leave the body much more quickly than other viruses. But you would think that there'd be some scientific process where if you go out and you do random testing and you get some percentage of positive, you could extrapolate from that to say, okay, if that percentage is positive, what does that mean for the greater population? We're just not seeing it. We don't Has know. anyone been doing that kind of study? It does I mean, not. Rich looked. Rich Rich really did give it I'm the sure. college try. And it's, it's <laughs> I mean, not really Think about horrible. how politicized COVID was, right? If you were like, I'm going to go take a random sample to see however, you know, how, how many people have COVID, I feel like there would be an uproar. That's true. I think you would have a hard time getting people to voluntarily participate in that kind of thing, given given the politics, how unfortunately public health became a political issue somehow yeah. and it yeah. cost lives. I mean, that was another interesting part of, of Rich's story was he revisited the data on how the numbers break down among the rural and urban divisions. And, you know, it's just one of the most upsetting facts about these past few years. Folks in rural areas were much less likely to get vaccinated, and the death rates from COVID really follow the vaccination trends very closely. You know, it's um, it's just terrible. And of course, vaccination rates follow politics. Right. So did masking. Further, di- just- further dividing this partisan world that we live in, which is, yeah. you know, very unfortunate. Yeah, I feel like when I was a kid, the nation would have rallied like they did with polio and in in unison fought this back and instead the partisanship turned it into a horrible divide three years you're listening to today in ohio we are taking a page from new york magazine which put together a very long modern day guide to etiquette 
we figured that Midwesterners might see some things differently. Laura, what are we after? We want to hear from readers what they're dying to know about society niceties and norms post-pandemic and what they think the answers are. We've had some heated, hilarious newsroom debates on this, like how many exclamation points in an email is too many, which I don't think we want to argue on this podcast. No. <laughs> but <don't>. one <laughs> question that really stumps me is tipping, which our food writer Paris Wolf is going to take on. After the pandemic with the shortage of workers, it seems like anywhere you go, it asks you to tip. Like you swipe your credit card and then you get a box saying, do you want to tip 15 or 20 or 25%? Like I bought my daughter a donut on Sunday after church and it cost $3. And the very nice cashier hands it to her and I tip. 45 cents because I felt like a jerk if I didn't at least tip the minimum on it. So that's a burning question because I feel like, you know, you didn't use to tip on carry out food. Uh, one thing I want to know, is it okay to leave your food trash under your seat at a stadium or after a movie <laughs> anymore? I always did this growing up. Now it seems pretty crass. Laura. When I, I know. I, I do, know. I, my God. I know. I, I feel <laughs> was bad. Horrible. It was always like an accepted thing. Like you could leave your hot dog wrapper or something. And now I think. No. No, you never I, could. Okay, okay. Thank you. Then I need to be told Remember, that. She's Laura. from Canada, folks. So, you, <laughs> you know, there's to different You your trash at the stadium. It's not okay to leave, leave your empty cup there. The, um, the New York Magazine article had some very interesting things, like don't ever intentionally wake up your significant <laughs> other, and you uh, you can make up any lie to exit from an awkward drinks-only date. It, it was that kind of thing. There are 194 of these, and some of them, when you looked at them, you just thought, okay, that wouldn't really fly in in the Midwest. Uh, one of the we're, ones that one of our reporters looked at, I think it was one of the first ones in New York Magazine, was like, do you have to read every book your friends write? And he's like, I don't know anyone who's ever written a book. So that is not one we're going to address in our <laughs> Cleveland-specific. Well, no, there are a lot of people who who self-publish books. Well, and then the they answer want you is to... you don't have to read them all. No. <laughs> Especially if they're self-published. I think there should be a double standard there for... There's, no publishing houses and self-publish. Can I just say, you can wake up your significant other if the baby's crying and he said it's his night. Oh, okay. That's fair. <laughs> that is fair. I like, if you've heard this story before, you have like three seconds to say, oh, I've heard this before. Otherwise, you got to suffer through the whole thing. I, mean, I don't know who decides these. I mean, it's the writers of New York Magazine and it's going to be us writing these. So take it with a grain of salt. But it's nice to get a chance to think about these things and have a discussion on you know, just how to make the world a more pleasant place for each other. Well, and an interesting dynamic has occurred in the newsroom. People are bringing these things up and then pretending they're not going to write them. So then Laura sits down and bangs out the item. I think <laughs> in the end, half of these will be written by Laura. No, because obviously I have the, like, my understanding of trash in the stadium is obviously very, <laughs> very off, off balance there. We, uh, we are looking for anybody's thoughts on this. I sent it out in my subtext account today. We have a story on cleveland.com. Uh, Jane Maurice, the reporter, is collecting them. So if you have thoughts on these, please send them. We think it'll be a interesting and somewhat humorous collection that differentiates us from those folks back in New York. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The nuclear plants at the heart of the Larry Householder corruption trial have a new owner comes interesting the day before the closing arguments in the householder trial. Lisa, who owns those plants now? 
Well, the current owner, Energy Harbor, uh, owns the Perry and Davis Bessie nuclear plants, and they sold those for $3.4 billion to Texas-based Vistra Corporation, along with the Beaver Valley nuclear facility in Pennsylvania. They will become part of a new subsidiary called Vistra Vision. The deal is supposed to close at the second half of this year, but it does require approval from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and the Department of Justice. Now, Vistra, I did not know this, also operates seven natural gas, oil, and coal power plants here in Ohio. They are the largest generator in the Buckeye State of Energy, and they were part of a coalition that tried to overturn House Bill 6. Um, Energy Harbor Executive Chair John Kiani could have made $100 million on the nuclear plant sale, according to testimony in the House Bill 6 trial from First Energy Solutions lobbyist Juan Cespedes. But it's unclear how much Kiani would make from this sale. And we want to say that Kiani was mentioned in the trial, but he has not been charged or implicated in this so far. And Neil Wagoner with the Sierra Club says, you know, how times have changed since 2019 when the nuclear plants were money losers. But he says with the Ukraine war and coal plant closures, uh, you know, the, the times are different now for nuclear plants. Well, think about it. That bill would have sucked a billion dollars out of our pockets to give to them for those plants because they were so decrepit and needed the help. I guess not. You know, Bill Seitz testified to the to the positive aspects of HB6 in this trial. Obviously, this money was not needed. Obviously, this was a scam mm-hmm. from the first day. Mike DeWine, when this first broke, said he believes in subsidies for nuclear plants. He believes in them. Well, obviously, these things had value because somebody bought them without those subsidies. Right. And there have been pushes. There have been tax incentives for nuclear plants. There have been pushes to, you know, there it's carbon neutral. I mean, it's not exactly renewable, but it is carbon neutral. And even the Biden administration is, you know, trying to help some of these nuclear plants that, like I said, are trying to fill in for coal plants and oil plants that are closing. This case has just shown how horribly broken Ohio government is from the governor's office to the legislature, all the way around. This is not a system that is working for the people of Ohio. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland and a lot of other cities get annual cash dumps from the federal government called Community Development Block Grants. Mayor Justin Bibb wants a big change in how this money is used, and it's causing a bit of a ruckus with city council. Layla, what's the conflict? This debate really hit a fever pitch at the budget hearings last week when they were discussing these CDBG funds. The city's community development corporations are these organizations that address all kinds of issues in their respective neighborhoods. They help residents carry out small home improvements. They clean up illegal dump sites. They conduct security patrols for businesses. They do crime awareness and prevention. They remove graffiti I mean, they do landlord media, tenant mediation and financial literacy. It's all, the list is just endless. Basically, they're providing services that the city has failed to provide. And some of them do it very well. I mean, they're supported by community development block grant funds. There's there's this $9 million slice of the city's CDBG funding that's used year after year to pay for a large, crucial share of each CDC's staffing costs. 
And Bib controls roughly 1.2 million of that. And the other 7.6 million is controlled by and split among the city council's 17 members for their CDCs and their neighborhoods. But the city is supposed to be hitting a series of goals with that money, and they've kind of failed to do that lately. So now Bib wants to shake up the system of how those dollars are being deployed to prevent losing the block grants. He wants to narrow the focus of all that work that the CDCs perform. He wants to limit that laundry list of services and have each CDC choose just one service that's eligible for federal reimbursement while using at least half of their CDBG money to help improve the city's housing stock by helping with major home renovation and rehabilitation and maintenance projects. And also, economic development is another focus of of this year's policy change. He wants to prioritize more assistance for small businesses, like helping them expand or relocate. And there are new limits on how small a project can be to count toward the CDBG goals. And meanwhile, city council members argue that actually the CDCs shouldn't be funded at all by CDBG money that because there are just too many strings attached. They say the services the CDCs provide are critical to the well-being of the neighborhoods and their residents. And so the CDC should get support from the general fund so that the CDC staff isn't mired in paperwork and hampered by all these restrictions then the city can use the CDBG money for projects that do qualify, like street repairs and things like that. So we'll see how this debate plays out. It looks like some of the players feel like, hey, we're, we are rowing in the same direction here. There's no need to. We all want the same things. We want high quality services and to meet the needs of the community. So let's find a way. It's a sign of broken government, though. I mean, when when they first got the CDBG money, Roughly half the city wards didn't qualify. They didn't have the poverty rates you needed to do it. And so council built a thing where the, even the council people in those wards got the same amounts of money. It just came from the general fund. I think they all probably qualified today. But, but the whole idea was the city is failing to provide services. These, these CDCs were focused on neighborhood Pro- projects, you know, some of them would replace stoves for seniors or roofs or or the plumbing or they, there were all sorts of things to keep people in their homes. But some hired code enforcement officers because the city was doing such a bad job in enforcing code violations that you had that broken windows thing happening in the neighborhoods mm-hmm. where they were deteriorating. What I don't get, th- th- these were created to spend this money on the goals that the federal government had set. If they're not doing that, why doesn't the city provide these services? That's a great question. You're absolutely right. And, and yeah, I think they do run the risk of losing some of this, some of this block grant funding if they're not hitting their marks. And so whether it's council's solution of switching out the the general fund money for the CDBG funding, or it's this idea of narrowing the focus of what this money can be spent on, I think one of these has to be the solution to the problem, or they're going to run afoul of the federal regulations. Well, and like you said, there are some CDCs that are great. The Tor- Detroit Shoreway, Broadway Slavic Village. They've done yeah. year after year after year. They've done great work. Uh, Tony Brancatelli, who became a city councilman, came out of that CDC, I believe. But there are others that have been shady beyond belief. You know, we've had audits in the past. This goes back decades and decades. Uh, and it all depends on who the council person is as to whether they're holding them to a rigor. I just don't understand why you have to create 
a third party nonprofit to do what the city's supposed to do. Right. Yeah, that's that's exactly uh, that's a that's a philosophical question at the heart of this. Okay, you're listening to today in Ohio. We know we've had one of the mildest winters on record, but we are still not Florida. Laura, how is it that Cleveland has emerged as a spring break destination? Okay, well, emerging is the key word here. So it's not like we're in the top 10 of places for people to go on their spring breaks, but we are increasing the number of people that are booking Airbnbs here. So... I, I couldn't give you one reason, and neither can Destination Cleveland. They pointed to a couple of things happening, men's and women's mid-American conference college basketball tournaments at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, which I feel like we host pretty much every year. Maybe they're coming for St. Patrick's Day. It is on a Friday, after all, this year. Uh, the Cleveland International Film Festival, the Great Lakes Science Center, the zoo. Uh, and maybe it's just all the sunshine that we have. Hey, maybe they're coming to get the tail end of skiing at Boston Mills. I'm not <laughs> exactly sure why they're coming. Yeah, it's just it's one of those headlines that you went, what? Right. I don't quite get it. Cleveland is not the the sun destination of of the springtime. Well, and one of the other ones on this list, and this is a list of 10 cities that have the most increase in bookings from March, 2022 to March, 2023. Um, Tulsa, Oklahoma was on this list. Orchard beach, old orchard beach, Maine was on the list. This is not a time of year that I would want to go to Maine. So maybe there are specific things happening in there, but the top 10 U S destinations for spring break are Orlando, Phoenix, New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, Miami, Seattle, and Salt Lake City. Most of those are warm weather places. So is this one of those bogus lists? We get emails every day from people trying to get so attention. So many emails telling us this is on a list or not. No, it's looking at Airbnb rentals which uh, and bookings, which is interesting. It's from a group called Alliance Partners. So you just have to, it might be a big increase. You know, I think it's a hundred and. 25% increase. But if you start with a pretty small number, it's pretty easy to get 125% increase. All right. It's today in Ohio. We're going to have to leave it there with some questions still on the table. We'll talk about them tomorrow. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to today in Ohio. 